Hey, it's Mark. We heard a rumor that healthcare has been transformed, or at least disrupted. MMM held its annual spring conference last week, MMM Transform. It was the first in person MMM Transform event since 2019, and a very successful one at that. Like the first Transforming Healthcare event back in 2015, this one day event featured a unique blend of case studies and expertise and a cross section of healthcare ecosystem players from biopharma and digital health to regulatory officials and tech startups. This week on the podcast, Highlights from MMM Transform 2022, the full picture of health. I'm Mark Iskowitz, editor at large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. From the opening fireside keynote with Dr. Stephen Clasco to the closing one with Tremaine Wright, chair of the New York State Cannabis Control Board, and every session in between, we'll bring you audio snippets from the full program. It's the next best thing to being there. But first, some housekeeping items. Going live on the website, mmm-online.com this week are the full profiles for MMNM's Women of Distinction Class of 2022. The Women of Distinction program, of course, celebrates the individuals whose leadership, creativity, and insight continue to inspire everyone who encounters them. Along with the accompanying Women to Watch list, these groups have set the bar high, both for their peers and generations to follow. And join us on Tuesday, June 7th in NYC for the Women of Distinction Forum and Awards event. For more information or to register, visit mmmwomenofdistinction.com. And now back to our show. Healthcare in 2032 figures to feature much more of the segmentation and personalized messaging of the type employed by Target and Walmart, predicted Dr. Stephen Clasco during his fireside chat to open the day. But many marketers may be sitting on vast troves of health data, not all of which are privacy safe. Asked about the ethical way to personalize communications, Dr. Clasco, former president and CEO of Thomas Jefferson University and Jefferson Health, and now executive in residence at VC firm General Catalyst, drew a line between appropriate targeting based on, say, a patient's sodium levels and what's not acceptable, profiling based on genomic information. My son's an actor. He was on a big Love's diaper commercial. So I watched it a few times on YouTube. And now every time I open Google, I get, are you pregnant again? Are you having another baby? You know, do you need more diapers? Okay, I get that. That's, that's, that's really cool. I don't want, without my knowing it, to, to get on Google and say, um, Steve, you have a rheumatoid factor of 428, which is 10 times the, the normal thing. We think, you know, Merck just came out, you know, if I want, if I want that, I want that to be between, you know, my doctor and me. And I say, yes, I'd like to, I'd like to have that. So where, where genomics really matters, and I'm going to give you a real live example. Some genius, I was an OBGYN resident. I'm a high-risk obstetrician. I was an obstetrics resident in 1978. When people had male infertility, some genius decided that for artificial insemination, the best 23 chromosomes would be OBGYN residents. That person should probably be in jail, but that's what they decided. So a lot of us were the folks that gave, um, gave 23 chromosomes for people that needed artificial insemination. I got three calls this year from folks of my age that are OBs they got 23andMe or Ancestry.com for Christmas. And, you know, you, you do that stupid software agreement. Three of them got, got either emails or calls. I think you're my dad. Because you signed that if somebody has a 99% thing, you know, what, I, I don't know if any of you have, I don't think any human on the planet has ever read one of those uh, software agreements that you scroll down, right? So that's what I don't want to have happen. Now, I have no problem 
with, with, with going to, to you and say, Steve, look, you, you know, you have a very interesting rheumatoid factor thing and, and, you know, we'd like to be able to uh, match you with, with folks that have done that and, and, you know, or, or clinical trials or whatever and opt in. But I should be able to opt in each time that that happens and, and not find out that, you know, that, 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 that because I said yes to something, everybody has my genomic data. The difference between genomic data is that that defines you. And, you know, if somebody has my sodium, it's one thing. But if somebody has my genomic data, it's, it's something very different. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think what it, when you get into the kind of healthcare consumer marketing type piece. Now, let me give you one other example. Did, did you guys ever, and some of you might be part of the people that did this, why all of a sudden there's all these stage four lung cancer commercials? It used to be like, you know, consumer marketing was Viagra or Advil or that kind of thing. Like, you can't watch a morning show anymore. Do you have stage four lung cancer? Use this drug. Well, that's because that drug is like $400,000. And it only works on about 10% of the people. But now what happens is those patients go to their, my pulmonologist at Jefferson, how come you're not giving me that drug where the guy got to frolic in the weeds with his grandkids? So they know that it's going to get people that probably don't need that drug to ask for that drug. Now, again, that's okay. That's marketing. But if we keep doing stuff like that, and if the hospitals keep asking for more money and the insurers, you know, had billion, billion, billion dollar net operating incomes because people didn't get care, keep asking for more money, and pharma keeps asking for more money, then, then, then the bow's going to break. So somehow we have to have rational marketing where people can figure out how can I benefit from having my data be used and go to the right companies. And I think that's going to be a really tough titration. When it comes to personalizing emails and other non-personal promotion, marketers should no doubt defer to their company's privacy policies or MLR units. A day continued with another future-looking session, this one on the metaverse for marketers. As Web 2.0 evolves into Web 3.0, the metaverse, loosely defined as the next wave of the internet, is estimated to be an $8 billion opportunity for brands to build awareness. Asked how pharma can show up, Meta's Jenny Streets pointed to two examples. An unlikely partnership between Pfizer Brazil and the immersive game Grand Theft Auto, in which players earn badges and points for posting that they got vaxxed, and one between Merck and Minecraft, in which young players of the game unlock awards for learning the periodic table. There is an amazing example Pfizer Brazil did. Uh, it really hit the press, I think, in November of last year, where they essentially, which it'll stop you in your tracks, just this headline. It's like, Pfizer partners with Grand Theft Auto. Um, you're like, what? Um, but they did, and they essentially built um, places to get vaccinated within the game, and they were trying to increase vaccine rates um, with that target audience, and they built an immersive experience within Grand Theft Auto, which included badges and the ability to get um, to post um, and to show um, that you were COVID vaccine, you know, that you got your COVID vaccine, and that is an example of, I think, one, education, two, connecting with an audience in a very um, authentic way to your earlier point. Um, but three, a place that I think uh, a pharma company could really look for an opportunity to reach audiences in this space and do it in a way that is, um, again, both authentic, but also I would say um, pushing in terms of the market, like Outburst. The other one that um, I don't, I recently saw as well was a partnership. Again, I think that brings authenticity between Merck and um, Minecraft. And so what this is, is a little bit more of a training. The idea is that they built a world within Minecraft where kids can go and learn about uh, the periodic table. And it's, um, they get awards, um, they're unlocking parts of the lab, and they're really trying to ignite an excitement 
um, in this new world of scientists. And so, again, very authentic. I think different type of space, um, not necessarily as revenue driving, but I think looking for those partnerships and those opportunities initially seems to be the most, um, I think, immediate place. Uh, over time, it will change again to my earlier point as more and more people start to uh, participate and uh, show up in the metaverse. I think you will find other opportunities, but I'm a big fan of starting with partnerships. Mental health issues were the theme of the next session of the day, aptly named the health crisis hiding in plain sight. The pandemic brought to the fore a host of mental health issues and panelists highlighted their prevalence. About 55 million visits to the PCP are mental health related, as well as the need for more multicultural competence in treating them. 85% of mental health professionals are white. Indeed, there's been too much emphasis on individual health and not enough on how health works in groups, noted digital healthcare strategist and mental health advocate Craig DeLarge. Asked about ways we as a society can become more resilient, DeLarge made a surprising comparison between our media consumption habits and our eating habits and how this impacts our mood. As we've been in, in our different levels of um, isolation and contemplation and this sort of thing during the pandemic, we've also been witnessing um, how our consumption habits when it comes to content is affecting us. And one day it occurred to me that this is not unlike food and that the same way that we need to be careful about our diets and what we eat so that we don't become obese or hypertensive or, you know, have metabolic syndrome. The fact is, is that there's a certain psychological, emotional, metabolic syndrome <laughs> that you can begin to suffer if you're not making sure that you don't have a balanced and healthy diet when it comes to the content that you consume. And so I think that sometimes we're spending too much time binging on a lot of junk food or junk content, and then we wonder how can we feel and act in such unhealthy ways. And so the admonishment, um, and again, if you reach to me, I'm happy to share this blog post I wrote you about this, is that we need to pay as much attention day to day to our content diet, what we're consuming through our five senses as we pay attention to our food diet. And not just for ourselves, but our families and our communities. The largest comments are particularly poignant given it's Mental Health Awareness Month. Our next session focused on how marketers can leverage EHRs to engage patients and prescribers. While there are reasons for pharma to be quote unquote invited in to the electronic medical record, so to speak, one speaker referred to the point of care channel as sacred ground and that marketers need to be careful to provide value. Here's Kristen Tappan, SVP Media for CMI Media Group, talking about what value means to doctors. We have a very regulated industry and we have some pharma companies and clients that are really risk averse and some that are more, kind of more willing to push the envelope. And it is, it's not brand new, but it's still relatively new. And it, so I think within those regulations, understanding those rules, understanding that our partners know the rules really well and are adhering to them um, can help address that kind of risk concern. Um, and I, similarly to anywhere else, like being really transparent, what is an ad, what is sponsored, what isn't, that we are differentiating what pharma is providing within an EHR from clinical decision support within an EHR that is really part of the software itself. Um, so I think that that piece can be addressed through education. Um, and then there's some places within the EHR that may be considered lower risk than others, right? There is a really good opportunity to reinforce prescribing behavior that's already occurred. So we're not trying to 
intrude. I think financial assistance is a good example of that. They maybe have already decided what they want to put a patient on, and we're just helping with that adherence and initiation component. Or they're, you know, we're providing an educational resource kind of at the end of the visit that might be printed out, that might be texted to someone. So I think that that's an element of maybe the crawl, walk, run that we were talking about earlier, you know, before we get into maybe more advanced types of targeting or earlier in the workflow strategies, which there's other barriers to consider around what's your messaging and what is your strategy. And, you know, if, if you're trying to engage patients who aren't at the doctor yet, right, it's, it won't be a fit for everyone. But I think that there is a need to really know your audience and know what we can provide that is meaningful and helpful. And then identifying the right moment in the workflow mm -hmm. that really speaks to that. Our next session took a deep dive on what good looks like on digital platforms in terms of health equity. Eric Peacock, CEO and co-founder of My Health Team, a platform with 42 different patient social networks across 15 therapeutic areas, explained the steps he's taken to improve equity on his platform. Among multiple case studies shared, Peacock mentioned the importance of surveying patients to understand how a disease impacts differently across racial lines. In the one-size-fits-all treatment of lupus, you focus on the painful joints and the fatigue and tiredness, um, you know, you're going to miss the boat on talking to that audience. And if you dig a little further, there's a skin aspect of lupus, right? How does it show up? You find that the typical lupus thing you'll see in an ad is a white person with um, butterfly rash on their face, right? Well, if you're black or African-American, 59% say it's more likely I've got discs or you know, patches and they leave scarring. So this kind of sounds to me like different conditions. Yes, there's some fundamental biology behind the lupus diagnosis, but if you want to talk to that audience, if you want to serve that audience, you have to figure out what are the things that are impacting them the most. So quantitative surveys is a way to identify not just access issues, but differences in how the disease presents, okay? So when we followed up on this, you know, obviously lupus nephritis, it, it impacts people in underserved populations about two or three times X what it would a, a white patient. And so the goal here was to educate them about what is lupus nephritis? What does it look like? What are the signs and symptoms? If you have lupus now, how do you make sure you're getting the treatment and why it's so important to stay in that treatment to avoid the advancement of that um, disease so it, before it could get to lupus nephritis? It's really about reaching them with the right message that's actionable at the time. And this type of targeted patient education that reflects the diversity that you're trying to serve works really well when you go to them. And this is where the patients are. They're on these social networks. Adherence is a big theme at any pharma marketing conference, and Transform is no exception. Not one, but two talks tackle the big gap in compliance with some surprisingly good opportunities to improve adherence for brands. In the first of the two sessions, Erica Hawthorne, Executive Director of Digital Media Strategy at Bayer, said much of pharma's adherence messaging falls flat because companies don't take the time to understand cultural differences. I think I look at it like there's this common belief, if you don't talk about something, it goes away. Medical disparities, some of the testing on my community for Hispanics, that continued into the 80s. Arguably, because of some people's lack of access, it, there's some continuation now, right? So you can say all the right things if you do not address that. My reason for not taking it may be different 
than your reason for not taking it. So if you don't recognize me as an African-American and what my issues are, we're never going to have an authentic conversation, right? Because I am always, it's interesting because I say that about authenticity and Alex Goldman is here for my team and I always say this to people, I don't even go by Erica outside of work. I'm conforming and code switching to the common group, but I don't trust anyone who doesn't know that that's not my name, right? And there's a level of depth there. And I don't think because it gets uncomfortable for other people, not for us, because we're uncomfortable all the time, unpeeling those layers and messaging to those issues is going to close that gap. Because the reason that I'm not going to take it is totally different from someone who doesn't come from my community or it's layered on to those issues. And so it comes back to putting it all together and saying, how do I message? If you catch me on BET, you know I'm black. Talk to me like I am. (laughs) And it's a uniform ad to everyone. And where are people that uniform? We don't even go to the same churches. Black churches, white churches, Hispanic churches. You came to my church, BET. Recognize that you're in my church. I don't have to conform to your message. That's authenticity. The other opportunity is around prescription abandonment at the pharmacy counter. In the second of the two adherent sessions, Dr. First Jennifer DeGenero explained this issue as, quote unquote, a fracture, not only of the first fill, but of the entire patient journey. 25% of new prescriptions are not filled. That's one out of four, huge number. Why is that? Um, Research tells us it's for around three core areas. And this came up somewhat in the panel earlier. I think I heard a question about um, emotions and, you know, how to handle, handle that. Um, we see that patients, there are friction points with patients in that first fill around lack of education, lack of resources around financial needs and um, behavioral reasons. So education, you know, they might have concerns over efficacy or side effects. Perhaps they didn't have enough time with their provider or physician. They don't quite understand the therapy they're going on. Um, financial, certainly not a surprise there, high copay or deductible. Um, sticker shock, when they go to the pharmacy, they abandon it. Um, procrastination and forgetfulness. This is actually very common. Um, people who are going on with their day, they're busy, they might be running the soccer practice. Maybe they don't have any symptoms. They simply abandon it. I don't need it. So these friction points are really important in how what we are doing, sitting on the e-prescribing data, um, how we're attacking for these and how we are looking to arm patients at a very critical time with the resources they need. Another aspect of overall health that has downstream impacts on therapeutics is the amount of sleep we get. The afternoon agenda kicked off with a presentation from sleep tech company Knox Health. In it, Heidi Anderson, president and chief growth officer, talked about how the company whose tools aim to help users get to the root cause of sleep issues views sleep as a quote-unquote accelerator of care for keeping people on therapy. One of the areas um, that I'm tasked with is creating this center of excellence. So as part of the employer benefit for um, Sleep Charge, which mm-hmm. is our enterprise solution, uh, employees, you know, like employers from AT&T, Warner Media, the benefits that they offer to their employees is to come in and get education, right? So when I joined in January, um, I sort of went through the existing library and I thought, you know, and I've been in consumer health for several decades, right? And the conversation around sleep has been just the same, you know what I mean? I I was sort of looking at the advice, right? It's the same, like, oh, you know, try to avoid caffeine later in the day, lower the lights at night. It's like, okay, how many times are we going to say that? There's got to be something smarter. 
um, something that's going to help people tweak their behaviors. They know they shouldn't have that caffeine at 4 o'clock, but when you're sitting at the office, right, and you haven't slept well the night before, it just becomes this vicious loop. So I feel a lot of, you know, where we can kind of leverage um, some of the science, which you can make sexy and, you know, get people to lean in and understand it doesn't need to be intimidating because when I think about what's happening in the brain and the opportunity to educate people, just your typical person around what is going on when you have poor sleep, it's like mind-boggling to me, you know? I uh, recently watched, as part of my onboarding, read a book uh, by Matthew Walker. He's the, a neuroscientist at UC Berkeley. He founded the Sleep Research Center, and he was talking about the fact that when you, just one night bad sleep, um, creates these toxic proteins in your brain that increase your risk for dementia and Alzheimer's. So when you think about somebody who has a chronic, is chronically sleep deprived, suffering from sleep apnea or insomnia, this is no joke, right? So this is kind of a daily thing, plus upping your risk, as we mentioned earlier, for heart disease, stroke, depression, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and he also talked about uh, the association between poor sleep and mental health. So it's, you know, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and part of what we're going to be uncovering is the correlation, right? And it's almost like which comes first, right? Is it the depression that doesn't make you sleep, or is it the poor sleep that leads to the depression? It's a little bit of both. Yeah. But I think people, you know, the consumers, patients are ready to hear more. It's like, help me, you know, help myself, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's... I think that'd be a good question for the audience. Has, has your doctor ever asked you about your sleep? Anybody? A really progressive doctor. I think we should go to Steve's doctor because he's asking or she's asking about your sleep. Um, it's not typically something that's that's asked about, and it's funny because you talk to people who have new little ones at home, right? And they're very focused on sleep. The pediatrician says, "How many hours is your child sleeping? Are they sleeping? Are they napping? All the things." And then all of a sudden, we grow up, and no one's taking care of our sleep anymore. So um, we're pretty excited about thinking about it as this great accelerator of care and really helping educate people on the fact that sleep is an underpinning of all these things. And then to the extent that we can um, you know, lend our support and help as we're all in this quest for keep, getting people on the appropriate uh, therapy and then keeping them on therapy to deliver, to deliver outcomes. And what would a conference devoted to the full picture of health be without an update on wearables? Wearables are extending into new areas, with a variety of gadgets offering to track everything from calories burned to menstrual periods. Communities have formed around devices from Peloton, Garmin, and Echelon, becoming vast data repositories in and of themselves. As consumer tracking evolves to provide a broader range of function, the wellness work session explored these trends. As quantified self becomes more a part of life, one big question has been, can doctors trust the data? Not always, cautioned panelist Dr. Tanya Elliott, who is Chief Medical Officer of Virtual Care and Vice President Clinical Network Services at Ascension. And that's okay. Dr. Elliott distinguished between consumer wearables meant to spark a conversation with the doctor and FDA-tested monitors that allow for remote diagnostic testing. There's the remote patient monitoring path, right, that you have to go through a pathway of FDA clearance. And so these are more the devices and the things that we prescribe and provide to patients. And then there's this world of consumer wearable devices. And I think, at least in my mind, for consumer wearables, they, you know, the clinicians can't really trust the data because it's not, um, there aren't any guardrails or parameters around the data. And I think that's by design to say these are consumer engagement tools and devices, but they're really not meant to inform a treatment decision. I shouldn't be making a decision based off of, uh, you know, a step counter unless I've validated that those steps are accurate. Otherwise, the liability is on me, and that's a whole other discussion. 
So I think, at least for the consumer wearables, it's um, having them be more self-service for patients and digital engagement tools for people and help to reinforce healthy behaviors, but drawing a line between that and providing medical direction. It can spark a conversation, just like a patient will tell me, yes, I went and I played softball or ran around and I felt, you know, I felt great because I was physically active. Um, but, you know, we cannot rely on that data coming through to truly inform a treatment decision. The day wrapped up with another fireside chat, this one with Tremaine Wright, chair of New York State's Cannabis Control Board. New York State approved medical use of cannabis in 2014 and passed the regulation for adult use in 2021. Chair Wright spoke about the role medical marketers play in destigmatizing marijuana use for the consumer audience. The average person that does not already use cannabis, that wants to use it, usually wants to get information from a trusted source. Our medical professionals are those people for us. They open the door. They help people to understand what's going to happen or what they can expect if they were to use um, a THC or even a hemp product. They're the ones that I think um, most of our community want to have a conversation with. So I think that they could actually lead the way in helping with destigmatization. Of course, there's the entire adult use market conversation and it's, you know, it's hip, it's cool, it's people that don't want to smoke cigarettes and they're going to do this. But I think the larger group of, of New Yorkers really want to know what they can, how they can access, how they can use it, how it can help them in their lives. Um, I'm going to say I've had some very interesting conversations with parents as well as with some of our aging adults. Mm -hmm. um, they were extremely eager to learn more about the product and given the opportunity to have conversations with knowledgeable professionals, they jumped at it. We hope this gave you a flavor for MMM Transform. Readers can also find takeaways from the sessions at mmm-online.com. That's it for this week. If you like this episode, please give it a thumbs up. Better yet, subscribe on your podcasting platform of choice and help others discover the show. The MMNM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Deborah Stahl, Bradley Weems, and Gordon Failer. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. We're out every week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.